and you're taking with you a child, maybe your son, your daughter, or looking around grandson or granddaughter, or great-great-niece, or somebody, somebody who's not been there before, and you want to start off you know, in a big way to show them something of the city. So I don't know where you go. I, I think from Camberley you go to the same place. From Oldershot we go up to Waterloo on the train, and within about, I don't know, half a mile, there is the Millennium Wheel. So you decide you're going to take the child on the Millennium Wheel to start the day. It's run by British Airways, so you fly on this thing, okay? So you climb in the pod, and you take off, and the pod begins to move. I think it goes anti-clockwise, and you get up to about 3 o'clock on the clock face, and the child says to you, what's out there? What are all these buildings I can see? What do they do? What do they produce? What are they for? So you look down to your left, and you're on the south side of the river, of course. You look across to the north side of the river, you look slightly down to your left, and you point to the Houses of Parliament, Palace of Westminster. And you explain to the child something about politics, something about legislation, the law, that what goes on in Parliament uh, is to create the atmospheres and so forth, the legislation that we all have to, to live under. And you explain democracy and so on. And the child, because they're your child or your granddaughter or your grandson, asks you some very intelligent searching questions and you uh, respond and, and give them the answers, by which time the, the millennium wheel, the pod in which you're in, has reached the sort of apex of the wheel. And uh, you then, feeling a little bit more confident, swing your arm majestically to the right, point to the middle distance where there is, of course, the city of London. And you explain to the child something about economics, money, the creation of wealth in a nation and how important that is, and so on. And the child, again, asks you some pretty demanding and searching questions, which you give them some pretty satisfactory answers to. And by which time, the pod is now about 9 o'clock on the clock face, and you're beginning to come into land, and you're feeling pretty pleased with yourself. The day's got off to a great start. You're now looking forward to having a river cruise or going across to visit the various tourist attractions. But suddenly the child tugs you by the arm and looks at the Palace of, West, uh, Palace of Westminster, Westminster Abbey, and St. Paul's Cathedral, and says, what do they do there? What do they produce? What do they distribute? What are they for? How do you answer the child? Two minutes to chat amongst yourself. What's you're going to say to this child? No time to rethink. What are you going to say? Colossians chapter 3 beginning at verse 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thanks be to Penny. Thank you, Penny. Amongst those who visited Paul when he was in prison in Rome, under house arrest for, for a couple of years, was a chap called Epaphras. A convert to Christianity as a result of Paul's preaching in Ephesus, he had taken the gospel back to his hometown in Colossae and established a church there. Paul had never actually visited the church, but listening to Epaphras' report on how things were going, he was concerned. Hence his letter. Colossae is in the western part of today's Turkey. Um, it's on the south bank of the river Meander, which is, uh, whose winding route gives us the, uh, the phrase meandering river. It sat on the major trade route from Ephesus to the Euphrates. And there were hot springs in the surrounding mountains where people went to bathe in the hot, salty waters. And not surprisingly, in this very mixed, transient population, there were many different beliefs. Alongside the Jews, there were those who worshipped the various Roman and Greek gods and goddesses. Others worshipped the natural world or followed astrology, believing that the movement of the stars and the planets guided and influenced their lives. Still others were members of cults, or worshipped angels and special spirits who they believed were acting as intermediaries to God. And then there were various Eastern and Gnostic religions which claimed to have special and secret insights and knowledge only available to a very select few. And it was in this turbulent world of competing ideas and religions and philosophies that the small Christian community there was trying to survive and to grow. And from Epaphras' report, Paul feared that these competing ideas, beliefs, and practices were infiltrating the young church, hence the letter. So he writes to encourage them, as well as the young Christians at Laodicea, which he mentions in the early part of the letter, and to others that he hadn't met personally. And he urges them to hold firm to the fullness, the completeness of Christ to understand that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ and nowhere else. And that they mustn't put up with anybody attempting to deceive them with fine-sounding arguments or be bullied or taken captive through hollow or deceptive philosophies with their focus on human tradition or the latest fad. It's only through Christ, he says, that our sins are forgiven, taken away and nailed to the cross. So they mustn't let anyone judge them by what they eat or drink or force them to follow any religious festival, new moon celebration, or even, he says, a Sabbath day. He reminds them that everything holds together in Christ. He, only he, is the head of the church. And it is only through his blood shed on the cross that all things on earth and in heaven are made to be at peace with God. That's the first part of the letter. So what must this mean for them, all this being so? It means, says Paul, that they need to be united 
in Christ. They are to live completely differently to those around them. Since you have been raised with Christ, Paul says, set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. Rid yourselves of anger and rage and malice and slander. Don't lie to each other. Don't see each other as Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Such words mean nothing because every one of you is defined by and included equally in Christ. As God's chosen people, he says, holy and deeply loved, they are to clothe themselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving whatever grievances they may have against one another. Forgiving as the Lord forgave them. And Paul adds, over all these virtues, they should put on love, which will bind them all together in perfect unity and make the most of every opportunity as they explain to others why they are living this way. Engaging conversations, he says, that are full of grace, seasoned with salt. In preparing for this sermon series of scriptures that speak to us or that we, we sort of sense are important at this particular time in our life at St. Paul's, I'd read through some of Paul's letters from beginning to end. It's not something that I often do, it has to be said, and I think it's something I should do more often. And it's only when you see the context of Paul and why he's writing and the way that he starts all his letters, most of the letters, and certainly in talking about Christ and the importance of Christ, which leads him into then saying, and as a result of that, because of this, therefore, we should live like this, encourage one another, and so on. It's revolutionary stuff. We know that. Revolutionary for them and just as revolutionary for us too. And it's wildly at odds with the rest of society, the society around them and the society around, around us. But it is, of course, no more than Jesus himself taught. And I think it leads us, it uh, points the way to answering the child's question. I don't know what your answers were. But consider this. Amongst other things, governments pass the laws, as I touched on, which we as citizens agree to abide by or suffer the consequences. The economy or the market is about society made up of us as private individuals who are free to choose to do what we like within the framework of those laws. To buy and sell as long as there is someone willing to sell to or buy from. That's the essence of it. And it's important to say there's nothing fundamentally wrong with any of that. Except when people then argue that any problem can be solved by one or other. Pass a law to stop people being nasty to each other. You can't legislate for morality. Throw money at this problem. Pay people to be nice to one another. They're wrong. They're wrong because governments can't pass legislation. Economies can't drive these words that Paul is speaking of. They're wrong because what those things leave out, what politics and economics leave out, are the words that provide identity and purpose in any society. Words like love and faithfulness and friendship and, and fidelity and integrity, along with a whole raft of other virtues that Paul talks about, like compassion and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. 
I call these spiritual goods as opposed to political or economic goods. And none of these spiritual goods are very evident, it has to be said, in politics or economics. And they can't be accounted for in politics or economics. Take friendship, for example. If somebody helps me because there is a law to say that they need to do so or they must do so in certain circumstances, then they're not helping me as a friend. If somebody helps me because I'm paying them to do so, then they're not helping me as a friend. If you try analyzing friendship in terms of politics or the law or the market and wealth, it doesn't work. Friendship is about something else. We all know that instinctively. And all these other spiritual goods are too because there is a key distinction between the state and the market on the one hand and these spiritual goods on the other. You probably heard over the last couple of days that the SNP are going into a coalition. Well, actually, it's not a formal coalition, but it's an agreement with the Green Party in Scotland. And so they will obviously have less political power and freedom to operate than if they had a majority of their own, which they didn't secure in the last elections in Scotland. Now, I've got a thousand pounds in my pocket. I wasn't mugged getting here, so I've got my thousand pounds. Looking around the room, there's probably about a hundred people here. So as you leave, I'm going to give you nine pounds each. How does that sound? What am I going to be left with when I've done that? About a hundred, about a tenth of what I started with. The state which deals with political power and the markets which deal with economic power, with wealth, are essentially zero-sum games. The total remains the same, but the more we share, the less we have. Now think of these spiritual goods, friendship, kindness, forgiveness, love. If I share these with other people, do I have more or do I have less? Spiritual goods are the things of which the more I can give away, the more I will have. The more I share, the more I possess. The magic of friendship and love and so on is that they only work when they're given away or shared. That's why they are a part of the salt and light of any society that Jesus talked about. And he and Paul knew that the world always focuses on just political and economic power at the expense of spiritual power. And they knew that any society that relies just on political and economic power will inevitably stumble and fall. And that those individuals who do the same are left stranded when events turn against them, when life goes pear-shaped. And Paul knows in writing this letter to this young church that if they don't understand this, then they too the Christian community will stumble and fall and probably break apart. The local church, as Bill Hybels proclaims, may be the hope of the world, and I happen to agree with him, but it will only be so if the spiritual goods are taught and lived. Only then will they thrive and influence the rest of society. That's the purpose of St. Paul's Cathedral and Westminster Abbey and every other cathedral and every church in the land, including us. That's at least, I think, part of the answer to the child's question. So where does all that take us? 
Like the bullying, hollow and deceptive philosophies of Paul's day, our increasingly non-Christian culture sets the agenda and the rules on how we are to behave. The so-called woke culture. What to eat, what to wear, what to say and think. And any infraction is is treated as heresy. Sinners must be called out, cancelled and airbrushed from history. A slip of the tongue could once be apologised for and be forgiven and forgotten. Now it is stamped on foreheads in letters of fire, with the outrage going straight onto social media, never to be forgiven. Having been selected back in March this year, you may have heard about this, to become the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. I have to be honest and say it's a magazine that I don't contribute to or read much. But anyway, uh, this lady called Alexi Jo McCammond, 27 years old, was appointed to become the editor-in-chief. She's a political journalist, an NBC contributor, and a reporter for a political website called Axios. Having been appointed, she had to resign just two weeks later after staff members publicly condemned tweets that she had posted a decade ago in 2011. Tweets that she had apologized for and deleted in 2019. When it was revealed, she apologized again and issued statement after statement, all to no avail. A guy called Stan Duncan, the so-called chief people officer, announced to the world that after speaking with Alexi this morning, we agreed that it was best to part ways so as not to overshadow the important work happening at Team Vogue. No compassion, no kindness, no forgiveness. All that mattered was the economic health of the magazine. Caroline Flack, who I'm sure you've, most many of you will have heard of, the ex-Love Island and X-Factor host, Again, I have to be honest, not something I ever watched, but nonetheless heard about. Caroline was a modern-day celebrity. She was addicted to social media. She apparently couldn't stop scrolling through the many comments that were sent to her media accounts, no matter how awful they were. She hated it, but she couldn't live without it. Her mother said that the more famous she became, the more mentally distressed she became. It led to terrible levels of unhappiness, a lack of identity and purpose in an apparently meaningless life. And in the end, she committed suicide. There's not much compassion or faithfulness or love in politics, economics or the media. As those whose whole focus, whose whole meaning is life, is buried in one or the other, find out sooner or later. But Jesus Christ changes lives. Changes the lives of angry people who go around waiting to be offended or digging up past misdemeanors. Changes the lives of those who are afraid to say anything much because of fear of being cancelled out. Changes the lives of those who are searching for hope, for healing, and belonging. Now, we have to be honest in acknowledging that the Christian church as a whole all too often fails to live up to the demands of Christ or the teaching of Paul. There are far too many examples of that to dwell on here. You 
all have experienced, if not uh, certainly heard of many of them. I often say, and you may have heard me say it here, that the British Army is a deeply flawed organization because it's made up of people like me. And so is the church, and so is any human organization. That's the truth of it. We're no different. But the reality is Christ changes people's lives in all sorts of ways, but he changes lives through people like us, which is where it has to start. We who claim to be followers of Christ. Amidst the turmoil of a broken world, the simple truth is that we are called to be communities who serve each other, love each other, forgive each other. Remembering that we don't just exist for our own comfort, we exist to be salt and light. We are called to be communities that bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances we may have against one another. And in doing so, we draw people who desperately need forgiving and hope in an unforgiving and a hopeless world. Witnessing to the truth of the gospel that Jesus came to save the lost and repair the broken. We prove that friendship, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, love mean so much more than anything else in life and much more than politics or economics. It has to start with us, with us and our families and our friends and our communities and the places we work. <laughs> but it isn't easy, and I know that from my own experiences in family life and work life and so on. We know it's not easy. But my experience of St. Paul's over the past, uh, the best part for us, for Christine and I of 40 years now, has been that we are a church that has always taken its faith, taken the gospel seriously. What we believe here has never changed in all that time. We have never been just consumers of the gospel. It's never been about a couple of hours on a Sunday, but about living out the gospel during the other 166 hours of the week. So whilst the last 18 months or so has obviously been a challenge in many different ways, I am actually very confident that we will emerge stronger in the weeks and the months ahead. But, and I think it's a really important but, we will only do so if we revitalize the spiritual goods that Paul speaks about. How do we do that? Well, again, it isn't easy. It can feel all but impossible to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and gentleness and love when faced with the realities of broken relationships in a broken, increasingly angry and unforgiving society. But these things matter. And if they're going to be built anywhere, they have to be built and lived by us, Christ's disciples, Christ's followers. We must choose as Liz said last week, to refuse to judge others, condemn others, choose to forgive, choose to live generously. Hold respectful conversations, listening to one another, not engaging in a shouting or slanging match, as so many of the TV programs that discuss today's issues fall into very quickly. I started watching 
uh, question time the other day, I lasted about three minutes. Um, and, you, and you know the other, other places too. We shouldn't join in. We must refuse to join in the chorus of hateful and judgmental criticism that dominates our media, our politics, our economics. And we do that by remembering Jesus' teaching on planks in our eyes and specks in others. And by refusing to simply load our shotguns with isolated verses from Scripture and firing them off in all directions, not caring where they land or who gets hurt, which is all too reminiscent of the approach of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Jesus' day. And it has to be said, far too reminiscent of many churches and indeed Christians today. Ultimately, it means living in the way that Jesus wants us to live. To be determined to stand against the tide. To be a community of courage and stand against the recriminations and the finger pointing. Against the internecine warfare. And by doing that, by spending time together. Here at church and in places like our life groups. By encouraging those not physically with us by building on our digital online ministry, sharing our services, posting quotes or comments about their content, talking with one another during the week about what it is we've heard or felt challenged by or hurt by in our services week by week. And by ensuring that everyone, those engaged here physically and those on the margins know that they matter and that they are needed by us. So we visit, we call, we text, we email. We are to be channels of God's grace, living in a cycle of grace rather than a cycle of grief, breaking out of seeing our purpose and our identity, our significance as dependent upon worldly achievement, which is always temporary and fragile. Most of us don't know that till we get older in life and then we look back and realize pretty clearly that that was the case. We need to move into, into an understanding, this cycle of grace, that means that God isn't interested in our earthly success. He simply loves us and accepts us for who we are. And if we can learn to do that, if we can learn to live these spiritual goods that Paul writes about, for ourselves and within our families and our friends, then we can learn to do it for others and the circle is expanded. And when we fail in all of this, which we will, we then do it by picking ourselves up and starting again, knowing that we are covered by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, by his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. And I trust that you're all up for doing it. Amen.